Fortnite in Film is a podcast where every week you get the chance to listen in on a group of film lovers chatting about the great, or not so great, movies that we've been watching over the past fortnight. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of A Fortnight in Film. I'm your host, Jason. And I'm your co-host, George. Thanks for tuning in. So here we are, the last episode for the year. Um, Taiwan accepted 52. There's 52 weeks in a oh, year. Although they've been very um, spread out, not quite regular. I was going to say, we no, don't upload no. 52 weeks of a year. That's funny how it's worked <laughs> out, actually, then, yeah. We have hopes. To yeah, we, we aim for it. Next year. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yes, I feel like we've got three uh, pretty acclaimed films to... Um, we have close out the we year. Have. Yeah. Um, not that it was intentional. No. I don't know how how do we settle well I I did I did uh, I pick uh, all that yeah. jazz ages ago for you and Yes. And and, and and I picked I picked I nah see that's I picked Eyes Wide Shut. Really? I thought Django was my pick. Oh but yeah. Wasn't. Jacob I picked picked Eyes Wide Jacob Shut. picked Django. Yeah, Jacob that's picked it. Django. Because I said yeah. I was going to watch it, and I and I randomly, and he was like, "Well, that's really good. and I had picked um all that jazz for you and Jacob ages ago. So then yes. you said to me, "Let's just do it for the for this episode." So yes. yeah, that's good. We clarify yeah. that. Yeah, so I picked Eyes yeah. Wide Shut. Okay, go. well, yeah, um, we were going well, we're starting on a weird note yeah. then with, with Eyes Wide. Yeah, I was oh, starting on Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> okay, all yes, right. because we got we we forgot okay. who's who's picked <laughs> what film, right? Um. So yes, hopefully. Uh, I mean, it's. I, I feel like we're starting on a weird note, but uh, we're, we'll be ending on a fairly normal note. I mean, not you know, Django. Django is fairly normal. Yeah, it has its yeah, it has its sort of Tarantino moments. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> um, Tarantino isms. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So okay, so we will start with yeah, Eyes Wide Shut. Go for it. Um, so, uh, nineteen ninety nine, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Um, who I was just telling George before we started recording that uh, I long have held Kubrick up there as my favorite director. Um, but given my um, somewhat negative reaction to Eyes Wide Shut, he has been cast off from atop that mountain. And uh, Mr. David Fincher has now taken his rightful place as my favorite director. <laughs> um, so, yes, goodbye, Stanley. He's, he's, lost, he's lost the supporter. Yes. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> uh, so, and yes, talking of R.I.P., uh, Stanley Kubrick, this was his last film. Um, he actually yes. died, uh, what, like two weeks or something? Two weeks. After, and there, there are lots of, there are actually out, lots or... of conspiracies. Uh, he died be- about three weeks before it released. Okay. Um, and there are lots of conspiracies as to, because he, he had a heart attack in his sleep. But there it are conspiracies <laughs> that he was, there are conspiracies that he was basically bumped off. Um, because of the uh, con- some of the contents that was cut from from the basically twenty three minutes were cut from from the film um, from the main sort of um, party ball um, sort of cult sequence, um, which supposedly showed a lot more sort of um, sort of things that the elite get up to in in some of these in some of these rituals. So there's a theory that he was knocked off. Um, because he was showing what, like, some of these powerful people do. It, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a crazy conspiracy, but that's what I was on these YouTube comment sections talking about this this cut footage. 
because no, no one can see it. It's nowhere to be found in any vaults or sort of any. They the producers watched the first cut and then they told him straight away, cut, cut that, get rid of it. So there's a theory he was knocked off because of what he included. I didn't even, but anyway, I didn't even know this, or that there was 25 yeah, minutes of what I never yeah, knew. Yeah, that, so. yeah, yeah. So there's no, there's no full cut of what that was. There's a theory that was like sacrificing babies, um, like kidding, kidding teenagers, like using their blood, stuff like that. Um, so yeah. Anyways. The original <laughs> Stanley Kubrick was the original QAnon, you know. Exactly. Well, then, there is a theory. Was Q all along. Well, there, there is a theory in Hollywood nowadays that the celebrities use the blood of children to do this drug called it's like adren yes, adrenochrome, yeah, adrenochrome or something. Or something. Yeah, I have heard. Um, that. But anyway, that's a tangent. We we will get, we will get into that for <laughs> yeah, like just but talking yeah. about the whole blood of eyes wide shut is tangent enough. Like, <laughs> is that yeah true true? Yeah, I'm sure we'll go yeah, down plenty of rabbit holes because I've got a yeah. Yes, I've I read a lot about yeah. it, and there's a lot of. Yeah, conspiracies not just around Kubrick's death, but around the whole film itself. Um, I would say it's probably off the top of my head the most conspiracy-laden film out there that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's purely because of the fact it has that whole sort of sequence in the mansion, and uh, a lot of people think it does accurately reflect what these sort of some powerful politicians government people, sports people, celebrities get up to in these types of parties. Um, so there's a theory that he was sort of outing what actually happened. Yeah. And um, I do actually have in my notes, I've just read actually, I have here, it's probably the film with the most conspiracies around it and the most interpretations. I mean, maybe not the most interpretations, I know there's a lot of films. Yeah, there, yeah, it does. Cool. Well, yeah, there's a yeah. lot. Yeah. If you type into YouTube, like, Eyes Wide Shut Explained, there's like so many videos that come up of like people saying a lot of different sort of things about the film, what they think. So, um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, it stars okay. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, um, who were actually married at this time. They were divorced two years later, um, but they were married at the time. Um, so they're probably the two main people in it. Uh, and so Tom Cruise plays a guy called Dr. William Harford. And uh, Nicole Kidman plays his wife, Alice. Uh, and they have a daughter called Helena. So um, they go to this Christmas party. Um, it, it's funny because I didn't, you know, I, I've, there's a cinema I go to uh, and they're doing a whole bunch of like Christmas films at the moment. And they had Eyes Wide Shot on there. And I and I, I didn't see it at the cinema, but I when I saw it on there, I was like, what? How is this Christmas film? And then obviously I watched it and I was like, it, 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 it is it's sort of tangentially film. a Christmas film. It's more like the setting yeah, is no, Christmas. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a jokey, yeah. like Christmas yes, yeah, film. Yeah. Like as in people joke yeah. about <laughs> it being a Christmas film. It, it, it is set I mean, like, Christmas. I, I would you say it's, just, it's as much of a Christmas film as like Die Hard is a Christmas film. Like they're both set in Christmas. Um, <laughs> um, so they go to a Christmas party um, and uh Bill, you know, William Harford, goes by Bill. Um, he meets this uh, uh, guy there who he used to be in medical school with, who he hasn't seen in, you know, like 20 years or something. Um, and, and then different things happen, even at, at the party too, like this guy tries to, like, seduce Alice, and then these two young girls try to seduce Bill. Um, uh, and there's this, there's this woman there who... Um, like has an overdose um who 
Bill helps, and, and this woman is with this this uh, uh, this like the, the, the woman was. He's like the host of the party. Yes, yeah, the host of the party. Yes, yeah. and it was like an affair. Like he he was married. Yeah. To, you know. Anyway, so uh, the next night, Alice drops this uh, bombshell on Bill about how when they were on holiday years ago, like she fantasized about being with this Navy officer. I mean, they talk about it, but sort of before they can talk about it more, I guess, Bill gets his call of like this patient of his has died and, and the daughter of that guy who died tries to seduce Bill, but then like he, he refuses. There's a lot of seduction going on in this film. Um, and so different things happen. Like he goes to a prostitute um, who later, you know, disappears and like finds out she's HIV positive. Um he ends up meeting this Nick guy who was this you know, former friend of his in medical school. He ends up meeting him again. He, he's now a piano player. And he says, oh, I'm going to play at this party later tonight. And it's like two o'clock in the morning or something. You know, when he says, oh, I'm going to play this thing. And so naturally Bill is intrigued and he finds out that this, you know, it's not just some random party or a bar or something. It's just a uh, very strange exclusive event where you have to have a password to get in and everybody's wearing masks and um you know like he nick doesn't even know like where it is or what you know who it is because he's only ever you know he's always had to, he's had to play play blindfolded um so it's all very secretive and and so naturally bill is uh, uh intrigued um and so he he goes to the mansion uh, where this party's taking place, and he, he sort of bluffs his way in, um, and he gets uh, found out um, as, you know, somebody who was not supposed to be there, somebody who wasn't invited. Um, and he sees all this this stuff happening at the mansion. You know, it's a very uh, hedonistic place. You know, there's all sorts of people having sex with each other and orgies, and, you know, um, I don't think it was shown on the, uh, on the film, but it wouldn't be... Um, it wouldn't be a surprise to see you know, lots of drugs being consumed, you know, that sort of thing like that. It was just hedonism at its at its uh, most depraved. Um, so this woman comes forward while he's there because the, the guy who's like the, the master of ceremonies, you know, um, you know, looks to sort of punish him for intruding somewhere he shouldn't be. And this woman comes forward who uh, Bill later believes is, Mandy, the, the woman who he sort of helped in, in the first instance at this party, this woman comes forward and says, no, like, you know, punish me instead. Um, so Bill sort of is, you know, once he goes to this, you know, this party, he sort of can't stop thinking about it. And so he sort of tries to track Nick down, um, but Nick is gone. Um and he, he tries to go back to the mansion, but someone at this gate gives him like an envelope, which is basically like says, stay away. Um, and he discovers that this Mandy has died um, from an overdose. And so he goes to the, uh, he goes to the, the host's house, the host of the, not the, the mansion party, but the Christmas party, although as I'm sure you and I were getting into it, it is suspected that they are one and the same person. Um, well, he, then I don't, I'm, I'm positive they're not, but anyway. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, so he goes to this, this Victor's uh, house, you know, talk to him about it um, uh, to say, you know, oh, this Mandy, you know, who I helped at your Christmas party, she's now dead. 
um, and this Victor reveals that he knows that Bill was at this mansion party. Um, but he says, you know, oh, we didn't, you know, we didn't kill Mandy. Um, we have nothing to do with Nick's disappearance. We don't know where he's gone. Um, you know, everything is fine. Like, you know, you just need to not dig any deeper into this. Um, and Bill gets home. He finds a mask that he wore, uh, on his pillow, um, which you can sort of take that to mean a new number of different things. Um, and the film ends and I'm sure we'll get into this too. And I didn't actually notice it at the time. Um, but I know a lot of people written about it, but the film ends with the three of them going shopping, Bill, Allison, Helena, and, uh, in the background, like as Bill and Alice are talking to each other, apparently and so I didn't pick this up on the thing and I haven't actually gone back and rewatched it and I probably should have, but apparently you see shots of Helena walking off with these men. Um, oh, I did, I didn't pick that up either. No, I did, but I, I read a lot about it. Is you know, apparently there's shots of this of Helene of a child walking off with his men, and the men who she walks off with, and they're like older men, obviously, when she's a child. Um, the, the men they walk off, the men she walks off with are the same men who are like at this Christmas party, and so then there's all these theories about that, anyway. So that's a film. Um, it probably doesn't sound as, as weird as it is, it's a very strange, um, you know, surreal film, yes, enigmatic. Um, so it probably sounded my description of it probably sounded more normal than it is. Um, so I went into this expecting to like it because, as I said, going into this, Kubrick was my favorite director. Um, and obviously, I, I knew of the film and I'd heard a lot about it, and um, I sort of figured, oh, this would be really good. I gave it two stars. Um, I didn't hate it. The messaging of it. And, and we'll get into obviously, I guess, what I took away from it versus what you took away from it. The messaging of it wasn't that deep, in my opinion. Certainly not as deep as perhaps the people online would, you know, attribute it to me. Um, there wasn't really a lot of action uh, in the grand scheme of things uh, or tension, apart from obviously the mansion. That was obviously interesting. The rest of it, there was not much happening, in my opinion. Um, and it was just it was just rather a disappointing watch. Um so that was that was my thoughts. Obviously I'll expand as we go on. What did you think? Um I gave it four stars. Um so yeah, I thought it was a great I thought it was a great film. Um I didn't have I obviously had had heard of it, but I knew it was one of his most famous films. Um so I wasn't really but I didn't know a lot about it, so I wasn't really, I wasn't sort of expecting to love it, or I didn't think I was going to dislike it. Like, yeah, you know. I mean, all, all, all I knew about it was that it was very strange, and it had to do with like this ritual and the cult in the elite, and that was all I knew. So, but no, I like, I liked a lot. I thought Kubrick's direction was excellent, sort of as uh, uh, as always. Even though I don't really like two thousand and one. Um, I think his direction, his direction is always sort of very distinct. His sort of attention to detail, the the sort of visuals. Um, I like the sort of, I did like the sort of enigmatic narrative, with all the multiple interpretations. Um, I think it's quite clever in the way it was sort of constructed, um, and the sort of themes, the themes that it brings out, um, which we can go into. 
Um, I thought the performances were good. I thought Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. I think I think this is one of Tom Cruise's best best roles. Wow. I, think. See, um, I, I actually thought the acting and the writing were like somewhat wooden. Like, and, and usually I love Tom Cruise. I haven't seen Nicole Kidman in a lot. But usually Tom Cruise is like one of my favorite actors. But I actually thought both of them weren't really that good in that. Like to me, it seemed like the writing. Maybe it was more the writing. So I felt like the writing and sort of the delivery of the lines like it feels bad saying this about a cubic film but it seemed almost like b-grade you know and like their acting just seemed to it didn't really seem to have a lot of emotion behind it i mean there were elements of it where i was like oh yeah that's sort of like realistic but i don't know it just seemed very wooden to me. well i yeah i mean I, I thought that tom cruise basically sold his sort of um deepening intrigue and mystery with the whole thing like his sort of psyche is clearly sort of you know getting more and more mysterious and he's thinking oh what's happening as the film goes on i sort of i liked that about his performance um uh i thought the cinematography and the visuals were were great all the sort of colors so yeah i mean i don't have that many cons uh, i thought the length was was fine um i didn't i didn't feel it dragged at any point i didn't feel bored uh, I, I you say there's a lack of action but i wasn't i wasn't needing a lot of action like i thought each scene was important and it carried weight in its own way um so i can't think of many cons i i didn't love it i didn't like totally think oh this this is one of my favorite kubricks but a, a lot of a lot of the themes like sort of um sort of marriage and sort of marriage and um sort of jealousy fidelity the sort of fragility of trust uh sort of emotional disconnects the sort of sexual power dynamics Sort of between them that it explores is quite is good um the sort of dream versus reality like kubrick sort of blends you know, dreams fantasies reality into one thing and makes you sort of question what's real and what's not and one theme i did like actually was the cl- sort of um class divide like it shows the sort of contrast between the wealthy elite so like the people at the party and then a sort of middle class elite like tom cruise and sort of um Nicole Kidman, like they they inhabit a world of privilege, but they're still outsiders um, in these elite circles. That that's why Tom Cruise is so intrigued because he wants to go into the next stage, but he can't he can't quite sort of get there. You know, he there's barriers. Yeah. It's yeah. like a world, you know, like an outsider would look at uh, Bill and Alice and be like, oh yes, they're upper class. But I think the whole there's point is class. exactly there's an upper upper class, yeah. but no one even knows about. Yeah. You have yeah. to get invited but, uh, to be in. Yeah. And Tom Cruise, he does everything to get in there, but all these barriers basically stop him from... It's like, it's sort of like an inaccessible realm that he can't quite get to. Um, and there's like, yeah, is he called... Oh, he's there, there we go. Victor Ziegler is the is the party host. Yeah, he inhabits this world that, yeah, they, they literally can't get into. Um, and then, like, the consequences of, of their actions vary based on the social class. Like, Ziegler... His influence allows him to, you know, basically probably kill the kill the druggy girl and have her in his room, and you know, do all this stuff in the dark side of society that Bill probably couldn't do because he's just a normal sort of middle class doctor. You know, there's a lot you can dive into um, that in terms of analysis that I think Kubrick sort of blends it all together really, really well. Yeah. Um, um, so I mean, before we jump into the themes, because obviously we can talk about that quite a bit. I'll just give, I guess, a few pros and cons. So in terms of like what I did like, um, 
I thought the score was really good. Like, especially during that, like, initial scene with the mask and, like, you know, the, like, or when he walked in and there's, you know, that chanting and, like, the orchestra. I thought it was really good. And just, like, the piano, like, the, the sort of motif of that, like, piano that, you know, when you, like, you know, when that scene of when, like, he's outed at the party or, like, when he gets the letter. It makes it really tense. It's oh, like exactly, brings some yes. sort of suspense to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the masks added to that too, the whole like creepiness. And they just built this whole like atmosphere of like tension and menace and, and that's the whole thing is you don't know who's behind the mask or what they're gonna do because you can't see them, right? Um so I thought that was a really good. And I think the sets too, I mean the house was fantastic, the mansion, whatever. Oh yeah. Um, I think that was in England. And actually I yeah, read it was that it was it was in England. I read that it was a place they never it was the first time they'd ever filmed there and nothing's ever been filmed there again in, ter- in terms of sets as well you have sort of mirrors sort of strategically placed everywhere which you know introspection duality in a conflict so all, all, all that sort of stuff which is really good i mean it reminded me of actually other films of his like it, it reminded me of the mansion i'm talking about like you know of obviously the house is in barry linden because that's sort of similar setting as such um the sort of final scenes of 2001 obviously we're knowing that that you know french renaissance mansion or whatever um even something like if i remember correctly like where the french headquarters is in paths of glory like that sort of you know so it, it's interesting that Kubrick has always sort of had a affection and affinity for these you know stately houses stately english houses usually um so i, I thought they were really good the, the sets i can't fault um and then just in terms of a con so i have a few notes here which i think um I guess sum up my my feelings on it uh, quite well, and then I'm going to have a lot of notes on themes which you and I will get into. Um, so I did think it was it was very slow, like a lot of Kubrick films are. Like I found Barry Lyndon to be, like I found 2001 to be, um, and it didn't. You know, it, like for me, there wasn't really any intrigue until Nick says, "Oh, I, I play blindfolded." I mean, you're interested, but then I was interested right. and I'm like, oh. You see, I didn't have a problem at all with the pacing before that. I was fine. I was totally... Yeah. I mean, like, I understand you obviously have to, especially because so much of a film, like, is is part of a film concerned with, you know, the elites and what's happening at this mansion? Yes. But I would say the bigger theme of a film or the bigger sort of point is to do with what you said, relationships, marriage, jealousy fidelity but it, it does from uh, the start with with yeah so that's my point it's like i understand you obviously have to set the scene beforehand of establishing the relationship between bill and alice and, and the dynamic because it shows because at the party you have her yes. talking to this uh hungarian guy exactly. him with the girls it shows there's a level of mistrust that they don't quite they're not on the same on the same wavelength yeah really no yeah so I, and then I, the whole I, scene in the bedroom right so i understand obviously why it had to do it i guess for me it was nothing well when i got to the end of the film and i have i have another note here that sort of follows on when i got to the end of the film it's like nothing really happened you know like he 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 snuck his way into this party he's well they all... did it was about it was about them sorting sort of their relationship out and sort of working through it right but but, but i guess i didn't oh. find that really interesting i did like to me i would have loved a film just focusing on what 
was going on at the mansion and and maybe turning it into this like mystery thriller. You you would have you would have hate you would have hated that because it would have been even weirder. No, but it was. <laughs> you would have you would have you would have hated that even more. You would have given you would have given that film a half star because it would have just been weird society. Party no, that stuff. was interesting to me. That's when I was hooked. When I when I, when it was at the mansion, I was like, I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. I'm like, oh my god, what is he going to find? What is he going to discover? And then he got found out. I was like, oh my god, what's going to happen? You know, that to me was the most interesting part of the film. And when I got to the end of it, and I was like, cool, nothing really happened. He snuck his way into this party. He saw a lot of presumably rich people having sex with each other, um, and they were all wearing masks. And he tried to sort of look into it further. And he got a letter being like, don't do it. And then it was, that was it. Yeah, but that whole subplot is all about also his his desire to sort of break away from his middle class life and into the upper sort of echelons and away from his wife. And, you know, he's he's, he's obviously jealous. He's, he's the whole, because it, it sort of intersperses the flat, the, him thinking about her her having sex with their soldier, right? So it's him. The reason he goes to the party is almost like he wants to get revenge on her because he almost wants to cheat on her. Hence, with the prostitute, with the party, he's intrigued by this other sort of world because he wants to sort of, I guess, subconsciously break away from her and sort of cheat cheat on her, which he doesn't do, um, but comes close. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say the whole the whole party sequence and all of that. I don't think that's that. I I think it's all intertwined into one yeah. kind of thing. I, mean, I don't know. I, I guess I didn't find the story of their relationship and the bigger questions that was trying to talk about to be interesting. But I did find the sort of pulling back of the curtain of being like, look at what all these really rich people are getting up to. That I found interesting. So I'm like, and I know it would have been a totally different film if it went down this avenue. But I'm like, I would have had such a, like a much, I presume I would have had a much better time had it leaned into this thing of, oh, like, if it was just a film about, here's what we at least get up to when he goes. On. And I, I'm not saying it would have gone down like a, a Da Vinci Code thing you know of like oh there's all these secret sides but to me that was the most interesting part of the yeah. film and it's sort of i mean i will admit like, I, I will I, admit that the, the scene in the mansion is probably the best part of the film because of purely because of the atmosphere the way it's shot the sort of set design of the of the mansion all the masks the colors so i that was my favorite part of it as well uh, but i can't say i had an issue with i had a good time with the rest like i was never bored or not entertained or I was I, I was intrigued, you know, all the way through for me. Yeah, um, I mean, it reminded me of something, and I, I hated these films, but it it was similar in its presentation. It reminded me of something like Fellini, like especially something like Casanova or Satyricon, where it was these like decadent locations and these very uh, um, like uh, you know stately. It was not even stately because Fellini wasn't set in Italy or was not even said you know the ancient Rome, or whatever. But about these very sort of uh, uh, amazing locales, but there was this depravity being featured at the same time. Um, and it reminded me of something like 2001 in that I feel like it had all these like half-baked themes in and like I can tell there's something there that Kubrick is trying to do, but it's like there's it's so much things happening. Yeah, but there, there were the, compared to 2001, there were themes in this film. There were no, actual I, 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 I know, themes. I, I, I disagree. Of, you can I, list. I, I you think, can I list think all the themes. So I list, wait. I've got. 
I think 2001 was a far more complex and and a far more complex film in terms of its themes. You've got sexuality and desire, marriage and fidelity, power and control, identity, um, isolation, alienation, dreams versus reality, class divides, you know, social privilege. There's there's all sorts of stuff going on here I mean, yeah. that you need that you need to delve you need to sexuality and desire you need to delve into it. Well, I did. I mean, I I did read a lot on this. Um, like this is the thing. Right. I get he's trying to communicate, but I'm not saying he isn't. Like I get what he's trying to do. Thought, I just yeah. don't think it, he did it very well. Well, like, like it's like 2001. Yeah. Like I can tell there's there's. I much there. I much preferred this to 2001. 2001. I was just very bored and i couldn't get a grasp on a lot of the themes in there this had this had much more of a of a of a tangible story and a plot to grab onto than 2001 does which is why i pre i was never bored during this whereas 2001 there are really long stretches where i'm like i just want to turn this off like it's beautiful visually but there's nothing to keep me watching this whereas eyes wide shut there's like a mystery and a sort of tension to it that keeps me going sort of through it because i mean like i i have a note here i basically said i gave it two stars as i felt in good faith i couldn't give it any less being a cubic film and i said and no you should you should commit disregard cubic <laughs> you should commit to a lower no, rating i feel bad because i love cubic no, apart from this film i, I love him um and, so, and, I, and i wrote i said it does have some form of meaning themes analysis behind it but it's so bogged down in nonsensical symbolism and messages that it's very hard to either enjoy or understand. And I, I put here, it reminds me of something, and you probably haven't watched this, and I don't think a lot of people did, and I wouldn't encourage anybody to, because it was a complete waste of time. Um, it reminded me of a show on Apple TV Plus, I want to say, called The Mosquito Coast, which was an adaptation of a book, and that was actually adapted into a movie, which I believe, I was going to say it was the first, it wasn't the first, but it was actually the 50th film I watched this year, because it's on my letterbox. I think um, atrocious film. It stars Harrison Ford, and I want to say Helen Mirren also. Maybe um, I would like to read the book because the book is. I think the book has. I not read the book, but the, you know the source material has some interesting themes. The movie was atrocious, um, but it reminded me of that TV show. In that that TV show, to sum it up, and spoilers, um, is that there's a guy in there, and his name is Ali or something. I don't remember what his name is, and he he and his family are like on the run from the government right because he it was something like he, he i don't know if he stole something from the government or he did something to the government and there's two seasons i refuse to watch the second season on principle but the first season is like 10 episodes long right and the whole time you're waiting to find it oh okay what did what did this guy do where he's he's having to uproot his whole family because they live in somewhere in america and they have to go through the jungles of south america to get away from you know and so the whole time you know, i'm watching this series and it's a very good looking series it's a well shot series i'll give it that as i'm watching this series i think okay well okay next episode we're going to find out what ali did next episode you get through the whole of season one you never find out what he did why they're on the run and I got to the end of that, and I thought, well, I've wasted however long I wasted watching these 10 episodes, and you still didn't tell me what the mystery was. You didn't, t And so that's what I felt like at the end of Eyes Wide Shut. I felt like it was sort of teasing us of like, here's this this party going on of all these elites, but but all, 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 all you get is a teaser, that's it. We're not giving you any more. And I was like, so I got to the end, and I was like, I'm so unsatisfied 
and insulted as an audience that you've made me waste my time watching this and not given me the, the, the clue. But the party, the party isn't the main, you're not meant to delve more into the party. It's not the main thing of the film. You, you want a totally different film. The yes, fo- I do. Fo- I want a totally The focus, film. hence the ending in the shopping centre with Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, it's about them figuring out how to move forward in their relationship. The party, you're not you're not meant to have a resolution. What but like with the party, what else could there just be some more weird stuff going on? Like what could happen? But to me, I'm like, there's a whole conspiracy you could dive down that what's really going on in that party. And what's that? Like, you know, that to me would have been an interesting film of looking at that and like like diving like him investigating what's really happening here and you could have taken that in a million different directions i mean that's the film i wanted and maybe that's the film i went in expecting well (laughs) that kubrick didn't want to go down on that he he the the whole the whole thing the the big picture is obviously the relationship between the husband and wife that's it's them figuring out their whole relationship hence the ending in the in the mall is sort of left a bit ambiguous and open like you sort of get a sense that they're gonna reconcile but there's still this sort of lingering emotional distance there's a bit of tension still but there's a sort of unspoken understanding that they may sort of reconcile and because because tom cruise has sort of overreached in a sense he's gone to this place he's got someone killed i mean the whole point of the party actually is he gets he gets this girl pretty much killed so he overreaches and he sort of realizes okay i need to sort of stay in my lane and i'm going to trust my wife and she's going to trust me um so that was the sort of point of the ending overall um but it is it is left a bit sort of ambiguous which i i like i, th- I think that's fine yeah. in films when it's left a bit um, ambiguous so i do want to touch on the ending in terms of this child thing which i know you didn't know much about and i didn't know much about but i've read a bit on but before i get to that i just want to read a couple of things you know i like to find things from the internet to read um so some, some one star reviews <laughs> no no these no, are no. People, oh know, okay, okay. <laughs> like you know people's analysis yeah yeah, yeah got okay, it yeah. far more than i did yeah um so the first one is from a site called this is um whoever barry is um so he said and i'll try and read both of these quickly because they're quite long um so he said before his wife revealed her mental infidelity bill was 100 percent sure of the sanctity of their marriage and trusted his wife completely once the cat was out of the bag, the thought of his wife fantasizing about another man sent him spiraling into the chaos of doubt. The problem is that this infidelity didn't even occur in the physical world, so if she just so if she just decided to stay discreet, there's no way he could have ever found out. The same thing goes with a party at the mansion. Parties like this possibly happen all over the world all the time. The same goes for all sorts of nefarious activities by secret society societies. The only difference between that night and the previous one was Bill's awareness of their existence. So is ignorance, I cannot speak. So is ignorance bliss? Well, despite his curiosity, it seems by the end of the movie, Bill voluntarily chooses to return to the state of blissful ignorance. How so? How do we know that Alice's infidelity never happened in the physical world? We can't, not really. We have to take her word for it. And taking her word for it is a comforting thing to do. How do we know that Mandy overdosed him and Nick is back in Seattle with his family? By the end of the movie, Bill was more than happy to accept this explanation, not because it was logical, but because it was comforting. Some people despair about all the secrets they'll never get to discover. One of the main themes of the movie is that some secrets are better left that way. Um, so that, I thought, was interesting. Um, and then the other one comes from a site called SlashFilm.com. Um, 
They said, Kubrick's erotic odyssey is ultimately about the nature of seeing, what is hidden in plain sight and what we choose not to see. Bill is in a state of denial about both his wife's sexual autonomy and his own temptations. His eyes may be open, but they are metaphorically shut to the truth of his secret desires. The theme of willful ignorance is symbolized by the object of the mask. The ornate masks worn at the orgy allow a secret society to remain anonymous and engage in salacious and disconnected sexual relations. The soulless copulations of the orgy mirror Bill and Alice's potential affairs. There would be nothing but meaningless physical encounters that could never replace the profound intimacy of their marriage, a genuine type of closeness that allows them to be their true selves. Bill wears a mask in order to infiltrate the private ritual, but he also wears a figurative mask in real life to be an ideal husband and conceal his own sexual curiosity outside of his relationship with Alice. Meanwhile, Alice wears her own mask in the role of perfect wife and mother. Um, so I thought there were some interesting interpretations. Um, and then I guess the, to touch on this final, you know, as we go down the conspiracy rabbit hole, which I don't suggest we do, but I do find it interesting that said this this scene was pointed out at the end of the film and i've not said i didn't i haven't gone back and rewatch it and maybe if i did i would i would pick it up but i said apparently there's a scene at the end of the film where helena wanders off with these older men and these are the same men who went to christmas party and i'm sure this would tie into this whole thing of kubrick and dying and you know what he was really showing because a lot of the stuff i read is um there's probably uh an inordinate uh, an inordinate amount of people who are obsessed with the um, uncovering of certain things in this film, you know, they're obsessed by what does it really show, and this shows what the elites are up to, and they're all, they're all pedophiles, and all, they're all these uh, debaucherous, you know, hedonistic people, and they're having these orgy parties and uh, doing all sorts of things, and I, I, I didn't even know the stuff you mentioned about killing babies and teenagers and all the rest of it um but i found it interesting that so many people i said you and i didn't even notice it right but so many people you get to the end of this movie and they're like oh but there's that scene with the girl wandering off with the men and this shows this and that and it's like uh, it's like i feel like you could take every frame in this film and probably you know pull something out of it you know <laughs> yeah but if if that is an actual scene of these men taking away helena that is an actual thing that is happening that yes, does no, signify true, something yeah. strange. Yes. Um, so if that's the thing, I understand the analysis on that because that's such a big thing. To, like, why would, why would she be taken away by two older men? Like, that's so I understand the uh, theories for that and the um, the whole ritual scene, especially with the cut footage, um, because there's clearly I don't know I don't know if he was trying to sort of show anything that these elites do actually get up to i don't know i think the heart attack theory is a bit far fetched to the fact that he was killed um because i think mean, i don't know if he was a bit of an unhealthy guy anyway i think it was just a natural heart attack <laughs> but it is strange he died just you know three weeks before it was released um but yeah i'm not one of those tin you know crazy conspiracy theorists <laughs> but um yeah i need to rewatch the ending then because i don't remember seeing that um because from what i remember it's just like a sort of shot reverse shot setup right exactly them, yeah. of them talking um so very but, interesting yeah. film um as a lot of cubic films are um <laughs> i haven't actually the only films i've disliked really are 2001 and a clockwork orange um which is funny yeah i love a clockwork orange and i can appreciate 
what 2001 is trying to do. Well, didn't we give the same rating? Didn't we give the same rating? No, you gave it three stars. I gave it two and a half. No, I gave it three and a half. Oh, I gave it two and a half. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I need to rewatch The Clockwork Orange. So I feel like my opinion has probably changed. Since yeah, I, I need to rewatch it. it, but I can't bring myself to do it. It's too traumatizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I cannot. But um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Should we move on to the next one? This might be a bit of a short one because um, I know that you 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 hated it, and um, it's one of my personal favorites. Um, so I feel like we well, might, we're not going to have much closing to, out the year on a classic note we're not, as usual. We're not we're, <laughs> we're not going to have much to agree on, so no. it'll be probably a short a short back and, and forth. And it's also probably um, not. It's not like eyes wide shut where we didn't agree, but there's actually interesting things to talk about. Whereas here, it's quite a straightforward. Yeah, like, like well, I think there's a lot well, of but, but I mean, stuff it, it's not as deep as Eyes Wide Shut is the point I'm making. Right, okay. Yeah, got it. Okay. Right, so it's uh, All That Jazz, um, directed by Bob Fossey, Foss, Fossey, um, 1979. Um, so I'll, I'll launch into the plot. So we have uh, Joe Gideon, played by Roy Scheider, um, who's a theatre director and choreographer trying to balance staging his latest Broadway musical with editing a Hollywood film he has directed called The Stand-Up. And he's a sort of alcoholic, well, workaholic who chain smokes cigarettes. He's a womanizer who constantly flirts and has sex with a sort of stream of women. Um, and each morning he starts his day by playing a tape of Vivaldi while taking doses of Vicine, Alka-Seltzer and Dexedrine. And always finishing by looking at, at himself in the mirror and telling himself, it's showtime, folks. Um, and... So we have his, and he has an ex-wife called Audrey, who's sort of involved with the production of the show, but disapproves of his womanizing ways. And then he has a girlfriend called uh, Katie and a teenage daughter called Michelle, who sort of keep him, sort of, they're the only ones to sort of keep him company. Um, and in his imagination, he flirts with uh, an angel of death called Angelique, who's played by Jessica Lange, in a sort of nightclub setting and sort of chats with her about his life. Um, and as he continues to be dissatisfied with his editing job, he basically starts to take his anger out on the dancers in his choreography, uh, putting on a very sexualized number with topless women dancing, and he's frustrating Audrey and the show's sort of financial backers. Um, and the only moment of joy that occurs is when Katie and Michelle perform a sort of Fosse-style number for him as an homage uh, to his upcoming release of The Stand-Up, which sort of moves him to tears. And then um, during a particularly stressful table read of his play, uh, he experiences severe chest pains and is admitted to the hospital. But he sort of disregards his symptoms and attempts to leave, but he collapses in the doctor's office and is ordered to stay in the hospital to sort of rest his heart and recover. Um, his show is postponed, but Gideon, he continues to his antics from his hospital bed. He smokes, he drinks. Uh, has endless strings of women. I think he sleeps with a doctor, like all, all, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and then, but as he does, obviously his condition his condition continues to go down, despite Audrey and Katie both trying to remain by his side. Um, and then a negative review for the stand up, which has been released when he's in hospital, comes out. Um, but despite its success, he has a massive coronary event, and he has to have uh, coronary artery bypass surgery. Um, and the producers of the show basically realise that the best way to recoup their money and make a profit is to wager on Gideon dying because the insurance proceeds would bring in a profit of over half a million dollars. Um, so then Gideon goes on life support and he starts to sort of in his head direct these extravagant 
dream sequences which star his ex-wife, girlfriend, daughter, who sort of berate him for his behaviour in life. And he realises that he can't avoid his own death and he has another heart attack. And as the doctors attempt to save him, he basically runs away and explores the hospital basement, the autopsy ward, before he gets taken back. And then he sort of goes through the five stages of death, uh, anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and um, um, acceptance, which is featured in the stand-up routine that he's been editing. And as he gets closer to death, his dream sequences become more and more hallucinatory and sort of surreal. And as the doctors attempt to save him one last time, he sort of imagines a huge variety show um, called uh, Bye Bye Life, where he stages this big number. Um, And in his dying dream, he's sort of able to thank his family and his friends as he can't from a hospital bed. Um, And his performance receives standing ovation. Um, And then he dreams of himself traveling down a hallway to meet Angelique, the sort of angel he's been seeing. And then the film cuts, just random, just cuts to his corpse being zipped up in a body bag. Um, and then the film ends. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the plot. Um, right. So how do we want to? Because I feel like my my feelings are going to get very um, hurt. Um, so it's best if probably you just you just you know say what you hated. Okay. Well, at the risk of upsetting you, I should go ahead. Yeah. Um. So I just I didn't really care about the characters of the story. Um, it didn't interest me or grip me at all in any way. Um, a lot of the time, more towards the start, but I was sort of confused what was going on because it was never explained, in my opinion, that he was this director. I actually thought this thing we were watching with a stand-up comedy, I thought like he was that guy's agent. There's a scene at the start which clearly shows him choreographing and directing and choosing the girls for the show. No, you can't miss it. It's right at the start. It shows him. It, it, he's clearly a director in that scene. Yeah, I, I never want. Yeah, I mean, I I I I, I never seen you talking about. It. Um, yeah, it's right at the start. I don't know. It's I I, I it didn't click for me that he was the director because I because I I thought he was the agent of his stand-up comedy guy. And, and then I realized, like, oh, no, that's like a movie within a movie sort of thing. Anyway, so that, that was just confusing for me at the start. I didn't understand what he was, um, first of all. Um, but that's it's just a minor thing. But it sort of, I sort of was like, what? Um, uh, the whole thing with, like, the angel of death and he's talking to this angel, um, I just found them, like, I have in my notes here, I have it nonsensically surreal. Um I just found I, I found those scenes sort of um, completely unnecessary because I thought it could have taken quite a serious tone of the film um, in terms of the themes, but it was like, oh, but you're talking to this angel of death, and I was, I was like, why? Um, I will say, even though I gave it half star, um, I will say it did remind me of, and I know this is uh, this is going to hurt your feelings too. Um, uh, I will, okay, I'll, I'll just read what I have here. Um, so I have, the only positive was the song and dance numbers were impressive. And I have similar to the red shoes, it's similar to the red shoes in this regard, uh, that the plot was stupid and the only saving grace was the technical aspects. But unlike the red shoes where there was conflict, thus interest by my side, even though I didn't like that film, I, I did think it was an interesting story. Um, I felt there was nothing like that in all that jazz. 
uh, just a man heading willfully and stubbornly towards his own death and making up big fantasy show tunes to represent it. Like Requiem for a Dream, it's like Requiem for a Dream in it we're supposed to feel sympathy for someone who doesn't help themselves. Um, so that's sort of where I've landed on it. Um, I do have a a quote here from, I believe, Wikipedia, um, which said, uh, still wanting to stick with the subject matter of death and wanting to use what he felt uh, were his best tools of song and dance, he, he being uh, Bob Fosse, uh, instead decided to make a film based on his own experiences with making Lenny in Chicago. So Lenny was a film and Chicago was the musical. Um, the story structure uh, closely mirrors Fosse's own health issues at the time um, and is often compared to Federico, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, which, you know, I hate. I've hated every Fellini I've ever seen. Um, another thinly veiled autobiographical film with fantastical elements. Um, so I thought that was an interesting bit of context as to, like, what, you know, what the film was about. Um, but, yeah, I just, it just destroyed you and just me. Um, I said I could appreciate the song and dance numbers. They were good. Um but just yeah, the story didn't interest me. I thought I thought what I was trying to say it was interesting, and I can appreciate it's obviously an autobiographical thing about Bob Fosse and his health and what he went, you know, making these musicals in the film and da da. Um, but I don't know. It said, and maybe it was just the surreal nature of it. You like, you know, I hate surreal stuff. Um, I felt like maybe it could have been a more interesting film had it been serious, like more serious, because it was a comedy in a sense. I mean, it was comedy drama. Um, and so yeah, I don't know, but maybe. Yeah, I just didn't, yeah, just wasn't for me. But I, I expected to like it because I knew it was highly rated and I thought, oh, it sounds really interesting. Um, but unfortunately not. So, but you you tell me. Okay. I, 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 well, yeah, I mean, I can't, I'm not going to go on. I'm not, I, there's no point <laughs> me going on a big rant or speech because anything I say but, won't but I'm change interested your to mind. hear from the opposite perspective. So I'll say, well, you, I'll say yeah. my pros. I'll, I'll say my pros. Um, first is the storytelling. So I do love the way it merges the fantasy sequences, the surreal moments, the musical numbers and the sort of um, gritty reality of his life. I think it's very unique in the way it merges all of those things. Um, I love Roy Scheider as Joe Gideon. He sort of captures the essence of Bob Fosse's struggles, uh, portrays his passion for his work, his self-destructive tendencies, his vulnerability. Um, I love Jessica Lange, who's great, and Anne Ryan King. I think is very compelling in it. And she's a great dancer as well. So I love her for that. Um, I think the visuals are good. All the dance sequences are just so well-crafted. Um, the choreography, I love the style of choreography. All the lighting and camera work is, I think, is great as well. Um, I love the sort of authentic portrayal aspect of it. So how Bob Fosse is drawing from his own experiences. So it adds authenticity to the portrayal of not just Joe Gideon, but the entertainment industry as a whole sort of uh, um, themes of addiction, artistic obsession, the pressures faced by people in the performing arts world, um, the score, you know, the jazz show tunes or the original compositions. I think they complement the story flawlessly as to the whole music sequences, like all the music sequences as to the story. They're not there for no reason. They're, they're sort of in his head. So they're showing his inner thoughts, his demons, what he thinks, um, what he like imagines his wife, no, his girlfriend, his daughter, what if they're basically him telling, they're basically telling him off in his dream. He's telling himself off. He's imagining what they think about him sort of thing. Um, I love the sort of message about 
the sort of sacrifices and toll that the pursuit of perfection and success can take on a someone's life, their relationships, their health. Um, and yeah, you know, I have I have so many notes here. Um, I could go into the themes about you know addiction, cycle of destructive behaviour, substance abuse, this obsession with work. You know, there's a there's a lot of stuff to dive into. But I feel like it would be with someone. It's easier with someone who fully. it's fine that you don't like it i'm saying it's easier with someone who fully appreciates it to to sort of you know delve properly into it um but there's but i knew i knew i knew that you would say that you weren't sympathetic um to 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 joe because oh he should he should just stop taking drugs but like um addiction you know it's a sort of multifaceted issue that's got you know, biological, psychological, social factors. Um, and it shows sort of authentically how addiction can overwhelm someone. This is like a Requiem for a Dream part two discussion. You know? Yeah, probably, <laughs> probably. I guess, you know, so probably. I guess I would compare it to something I watched the other day, for instance, right? It might sound like a bit of a weird comparison at first. But if I think of something, you know, like Limelight by Chaplin, right? And obviously that doesn't deal with... with drug addiction i mean it does deal with like alcoholism but but i I guess if 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 i look at that film right you have two characters who are at different points rather despondent about their lives right obviously the the female in it i forget her name she tries to you know kill herself that's how the whole thing starts um and obviously charlie chaplin's character um gets rather i mean he doesn't get to that stage that i can recall but he certainly gets down about his prospects in life um but certainly one of the themes of of that film and i guess one that sort of hammered home um quite quite heavily in dialogue and it's good dialogue so i'm not knocking it but it is quite you know heavy-handed is this whole thing of you know like you know the, the, the girl and it says oh you know i have nothing to live for blah 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 and Chaplin's like, oh, you have life, you know, you have life, and it's so much, you know. And so I, I feel like my whole my whole problem with something like, and it's funny because I'm actually, you know, anybody who knows me in real life will attest I'm a very cynical, pessimistic person. But I feel like Joe is that his name in all that jazz? Yeah, I feel like he, you know, I, I felt like he leaned into this thing of, oh, well, I'm gonna die anyway, so whatever, rather than the other side of being like no i'm gonna i want to live yeah but what but but jason not not everyone is like that this isn't a perfect world where that's a film and a limelight is a very positive film where you have someone not his inability to control his addiction is like a defining aspect it's a flaw that makes him human like it and it also it doesn't it doesn't glorify his behavior as saying it I think it actually criticizes him for refusing. It shows him trying to convince himself that he is loved in real life, but he can't bring himself to um, live because he's sort of this sort of addiction has completely taken over and he doesn't have the will to live anymore, which is a thing that people, that's why people commit suicide. People have, people struggle with that. If there's not this rosy world where his girlfriend said his girl, his girlfriend says to him, oh, Joe, I think you should stop taking drugs, Joe. I think you should live, Joe. That's so unrealistic because it, life doesn't work like that. That's not that's not how life works. So it, it's not and it's not glorifying his it's showing 
him going out on his own terms in his mind, hence the last musical number of saying of saying he, he, he's accepting the angel of death because he knows it's his time and he can't live in the real world. That's why he's he's being accepted and he's going out on his own terms by basically in his dream, he's apologizing and saying goodbye to the people he loves because he can't bring himself to do it in the real world. That's a, that's, a, that's a flaw and it doesn't glorify it. It's a fatal flaw which does exist. As, that's why people commit suicide because they can't bring themselves to live in, in the real world. Suicide exists, you know. Um, so it's just telling a story of a man who can't bring himself to live anymore. It's it's as simple as that, really. So if you had this rosy view, where at the end he's like, "Oh, oh, wait, um, I think I'm gonna. Li- oh, wait, I think I'm gonna live now. I've, str- you know, I've had a heart attack. Um, I've struggled with drugs and alcohol, but you know, I think I think I'm gonna wake up and go and go home. That is, you know, it's not it's not realistic no, to the film and like. I, I like a dark ending as much as the next person, and oftentimes, and I've said it on the podcast, I actually like... I love the like ending when it's a, who, the body bag, and it's, it's brutal. Right, it's and brutal, I like filmmakers ending. generally who have the bravery to do that, right? Because a lot of times, directors do what you just said. They give the rosy ending, they make it this unrealistic, feel-good thing or whatever. I don't know. It was just something about this. I just so so. Why didn't you like this I didn't one? Know. It's just, because it's because it doesn't because it, it doesn't your country because it doesn't I have know. a rosy ending. I've, it has a very I've, brutal, sad ending, which is realistic for a lot of people who go through illness like heart attacks and they feel they don't want to be a burden or they feel like they can't live anymore. So they die. They don't have the willpower. Joe Gideon doesn't have the willpower to live. So he so he dies. He goes out on his own terms, but he dies. He's he's he goes through the five stages of death. So uh, you know, I it, it's it's not a rosy yeah. film, and that's what I love about it. I've always it. said, if I read autobiography, I would title it a contradictory man or something similar. Because I know I would. Yeah, you you've just said why you should like <laughs> the ending to all that I jazz, know. and the, I I hold a lot of beliefs you, in your contradiction. Because what what you just said, you would like him to have the heart attack. And be like, oh wait, I don't want to die. I'm going to get out of bed and then live. I don't know, but it's not in his character. Maybe I was in a positive mood when I was watching this. I was in a life affirming <laughs> mood, you know. I don't know. Yeah. So. Um. But yeah, you know, there's a. I don't. I you know I know you, you don't like surreal stuff, so you know if if you don't like the surreal surrealistic aspects, fine. I I did. I like surreal stuff. Because it sort of allows for a lot of more artistic expression, like it allows him to, to delve deeper into his sort of psyche and his inner world, where you can't reveal that much in real life, and it offers more symbolism, metaphors, and the sort of visual impact. Um, so I like those surreal moments, um, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> said, it's just we're, we're that's fine. The year on a you, classic note of you, for, you loving a film and I hating it, and you know. Yeah, yeah never the yeah. twain shall meet so. no no <laughs> but we did we we can we both liked um the last okay, one well, which good. we we'll can finish on a positive on note you know in yeah all yeah. <laughs> when negativity we've had so far yeah exactly yeah <laughs> okay all right so move on to our final pick which comes by way of jacob um so this is Django unchained 2012 from Quentin Tarantino. It's the I know we've discussed Pulp Fiction. Before. Have we not with me? Oh, well, well, 
Yeah, I, I, I'm okay. obsessed with Christian. This is the, this is um, the first time I've I, talked about Tarantino on the podcast, actually. Okay, yeah, and, and I've discussed Reservoir Dogs with, I guess mm. it must have been Jacob. Um, yeah, it, it was actually. So, yep. yeah, there you go. So now, exactly, now yeah. you get to discuss in Tarantino. <laughs> yeah. Let everybody discuss it. Um, so, yes, 2012, it's a Western, a revisionist Western, as they call it. Um, uh, stars um, a few different people, a lot of the same people who he works with constantly. Um, yeah, Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, um, Kerry Washington. That's sort of a main cast. Um, so it's set in the sort of mid 1800s um, in America. Um, and there is uh, this slave uh, called Django, who is played by uh, Jamie Foxx. And this uh, bounty hunter called Schultz, who is played by Christoph Waltz, um, he buys Django um, and kills his owners uh, because he uh, Django knows um, the people who this Schultz is looking for. They find the, the people who they're hunting for this bounty. Um, and uh, end up killing them, and they also end up killing the, uh, the owner of the plantation where these people were working. Um, and the film sort of follows, well, initially it sort of follows Schultz and, and Django uh, sort of, you know, um, going around together, you know, collecting all these bounties because they find out that... Uh, Django uh, has a wife um, who I believe was owned by this, this yeah, Bloomhilda, who was owned by this Bennett, who they kill, but he then, I think, sold it to somebody else. Uh, well, he sold it to this um, Calvin Candy, who was played by DiCaprio. Um, so they go around collecting all these bounties that they have, so they get all this money together. Um and they go to this Calvin Candy uh, with the aim of, you know, buying Broomhilda and, and rescuing her. Um, and the film, you know, from there, I don't know how much detail I'm going to go into, and we'll get into detail when we talk about it. But the, the film basically is, you know, they go to this Candy's place under false pretenses, as it were, and try and make a deal for for this Broomhilda, um, but it's it sort of deduced that you know Broomhilda and Django know each other, um, and Candy is not. Um... It's because they're they're pretending to buy um, another slave for like an obscene yes. amount of money to get Candy to deal with them. Yes, right? and yeah, then yeah. they say then they say, "Can we have Broomhilda as a sort of extra right, in the deal?" Exactly. Um... And so they sort of work out through the help of um, Samuel L. Jackson's character, who is uh, the sort of I don't know what chief you would... servant, yes. chief chief servant, I yeah, guess slave or slave you know, chief, chief slave, slave of, of yeah. Candy. Um, he sort of figures out, you know, oh, well, this looks like this Django and we wouldn't know each other, and he sort of tells Candy, and it basically um, turns into a 
a shootout, um, and Candy gets killed um, by Schultz. Um, Schultz gets killed. Um, Django kills the guy who killed Schultz, um, uh, and Django is uh, ends up getting taken um, and is about to be castrated, um, but then. Samuel L. Jackson's character, uh, Stephen Warren, arrives and says that um, no, he's to be sold to this mining company and work to death. Um, but on the way there, uh, Django escapes um, and he goes back to this Candyland, which is where this Calvin Candy lives. Um, he goes back to Candyland um, and he frees Broomhilda, um, and he kills, you know, a whole bunch of people there. But he kills, he kills Candy's, um, is it his sister or his... Yes, yes, his, his sister. Yeah, kills Samuel um, Jackson. Yeah, kills yeah. a whole bunch of people. Blows their, blows yeah. their house up. Um, and yeah, the film basically ends with Django and Broomhilda riding off together, reunited once more. Um, so that's the film. Um, I liked it. I gave it three and a half stars. Um, so this is the fifth Tarantino film I've seen, and I have all three of them, all five of them, sitting at three and a half stars. I know, sorry, I lie, I lie. No, I lie. So, Reservoir Dogs, Django Unchained, Inglorious Bastards, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I all have it three and a half stars. Pulp Fiction, I have it four stars. Um, so I like every film I've seen of his. None of them have really moved into that, like great category for me i mean like i did and did enjoy pulp fiction more than the others but would i rewatch it probably not um so like i like tarantino's films and i think this was a good film um i don't think it's i don't think of it maybe as highly as other people i mean like it's sitting at you know 174 on the top 250 with a 4.3 average. i think it's a 4.3 yeah Um, but again i feel like that sort of tarantino bias like all of his films they hold up very highly which whatever um I, i'm not saying it's a bad filmmaker because I've, I've liked every film i've seen of his um but um yeah so like it was good i enjoyed it for what it was um i didn't think it was this outstanding thing but certainly you know i thought the story was interesting i mean you know i'm a sucker for westerns generally so i appreciated what he was trying to do with it and i thought it was it was interesting that you could shoot a film like this say 10 years ago and still have it you know be a sort of authentic western as it were um i mean i have other notes here i can get into later but um what did you think of it uh so i gave it four stars so we're roughly the same level um i've seen most tarantino films but actually no pretty much all of them up to now and again yeah he's not i wouldn't class him as one of my favorite directors um but i haven't disliked anything i've seen uh, i think reservoir dolls is great i don't think i have many rated actually because i watched them before i got letterboxed um, so I haven't actually rated them, but they they'd be around four four and a half stars probably a lot of them. Um, so I, I do think I do think he's sort of over maybe discussed, analysed, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. <laughs> like there are lots well, of tar- which, which I'm sure. I mean, without going back and listening to him, I'm sure similar points came up with Christian and Jacob when I discussed his film. He's probably one of the most analysed directors of the 21st century but i think it's because his films are obviously very very violent controversial um they do provoke talking points i didn't really think it was all that violent what say that 
Jason. I mean, well, I mean, like all the squib. No, the blood squibs in this film are the bloodiest I have pretty much seen. It's it's ext- Tarantino films are they're controversial, but they're extremely violent. They're known for it. I don't know. Really? What what film? I mean, what I mean, films have you seen that's more violent? A Clockwork Orange. Okay, but that's more like that's more sort of disturbing. What we what I mean is like the sort of bloody gratuitous Yeah, okay, violence. no, I, I do have one That's for you then. Also a Western. Um let me go into my Western the Wild Bunch. I'm have to find it. Oh, Bone Tomahawk. That's what it's called. That was good. Okay, that's that's that a horror. That's away. a horror. That's a, like a, yeah, it's horror. a western. Well, it's a horror western. That it is classed as a horror. Yeah. Um, I mean, that one was, I don't know. I mean, but like, people say that about Tarantino's films, and I'm sure I made a similar point of Reservoir Dogs. People were like, oh my God, it was so violent. I was like, is it? Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just desensitized to it, but I was like, I didn't come away from Reservoir Dogs or Django Unchained thinking, oh my God, that was so violent. Was there violence in that? Yes. But it served the story. It's I, I more, think... Yeah, it's more, it's more, okay, I'm trying to frame it. It's more like the the amount of um sort of blood and there's always a big shootout at the end of like like the hateful eight happens at the end of the hateful eight um where's wild dogs it does happen um once time once upon a time at you know hollywood there's always a sort of extremely controversial action set piece they if you go on wikipedia i'm pretty sure there's a whole controversy about the violence um on there use of violence the film became infamous for its brutality with some reviews criticizing it for being too too violent, uh, especially because of the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012. Um, the independence of the movie was part of the new sadism in cinema. There, there's a lot of sort of over sort of discussion, but I it's you know it is it I, it is incredibly violent. I think. For, I mean, I, I, I guess to me, when I think of violent films, right? If you said to me, like, okay, if you said to somebody out there. Oh, what are some violent films? They might default to Tarantino, right? Whereas when I think of violent films, and I've referenced these films I'm about to reference before, because I reference them all the time, but I think of something like A Clockwork Orange. I think of something like Once We're Warriors. That is an extremely violent film, right? And very confronting. That, like, This Is England, like the scene, everyone who's seen that film, there's a scene in that, and you know, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. That's very violent. Whereas I'm like this, I'm like, Sure, there's shootouts and there's blood. I'm like, that's a western. That's what happens in western films. There's always shootouts. Yeah, I know, but you know, but like... the difference is the difference is I've seen like in ninety ninety westerns or whatever. There's the amount of blood isn't in any other western I've seen isn't as much as in Django Unchained. Like, there's a lot more. There's a shot of this guy on the floor and the blood is literally blowing out of the body <laughs> because all the bullets are hitting him. Did you not see that? Yeah, but it's like I don't get I don't get in, affected. No, 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 I I don't get affected. I don't get affected by. I've seen I've seen hundreds of films with violence. Plenty more are more disturbing. Django and Chain wouldn't go in my top disturbing. It's not disturbing violence, but it's very like gratuitous and bloody and, and graphic compared yeah, to I other mean, films. I, know, I, I, but, I I didn't come away from it thinking thinking. Okay, yeah. okay, well we can okay, well we can move on from yeah. from the violence point. Yeah. Um, but it it was controversial for for that. But, yeah, but. I mean, like something like, for instance, and I think we've discussed this on a podcast. If my memory serves me correctly, something like the Wild Bunch. You know, yeah, well, that, that has was... a massive shoot, but that was controversial at the time because it was in the late sixties. Yeah. 
and they weren't used to that. Like, I would say that was more violent to me. That was more violent. Well, yeah, there are, there's a higher body, there's a higher body count in that, but it's less. Yeah, that one is it, like fifty people it, get killed. Yeah, but it's <laughs> less, but it's less bloody and sort of gooey, bloody gooey yeah, than Django. Yeah. I don't know how you can watch Django and not see the all the all the squibs blowing up and think it's not bloody. I, didn't, I, didn't, I just didn't. I didn't really think anything of it. Maybe I was too invested in the story. And it's funny because I, I I don't like blood. Like you know, like you, you know those medical shows and they show people doing operations. I cannot watch those at all. I turn away. I cannot deal with it. So it's funny that I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't come away from Django at all thinking like, oh my god, it's so bloody. I just, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, it's a minor point, but it's interesting that we diverge. But yeah, <laughs> what are we talking? Yeah, I was saying. Okay, yeah, I was saying. Um, okay, I'll say my pros. Um, I think the narrative is good. It's you know his journey from slavery to bounty hunter is good. All the themes of vengeance, freedom, you know. Uh, Sort of, yeah, I, I like all that. I think the performances are amazing. Christoph Waltz is great. Uh, I think Leonardo, I don't know if this is a hot take, but I think Leonardo DiCaprio should have been nominated for an Oscar and potentially should have won for Best Supporting Actor over Christoph, over Christoph Waltz. Um, I think he's a better performance than Christoph. Although I love Christoph Waltz in this film, but I, I don't know how DiCaprio wasn't nominated because I, th- I think he's amazing in this yeah but i guess um, also he sort of that's sort of his reputation right up until he won for the revenue yeah. it was like he would either never get nominated or get nominated yeah. but he wouldn't win but i don't know how I, th- I think he should have been but anyway um i think the direction from tarantino is fine um although there are stretches where i think it's i think it is about 20 minutes too long like it sort of seems a bit tacked on at the end after the after the initial shootout when he gets captured then nearly gets castrated, goes back to the mansion. I think that's all a bit um, tacked on. I think it could have been shorter, sort of wrapped up a bit sooner. Um, but yeah, all the sort of social commentary about the horrors of slavery, racism, the societal issues in in that day, I think they're all handled pretty well. I think there's controversy about the use of the N-word in it. Yeah. Um, but again, it's like that's how people spoke. Yeah, because they were saying, "Oh, like Tarantino, he just 18, yeah, 50s, yeah." 50s, like, I don't have a problem with it. People said he used it almost like too much because I think someone said that the N word wasn't actually used a lot in those days, like between slaves and with people. Um, it, but I don't know. I don't really have a problem with that. I mean, it's like but, you know, it's like it's like saying, "Oh, Scorsese's, you know, there's too many swear words in Casino." Like they're mobsters, and they probably talk like that. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, I know this is different too because the N word is, you know, racial and controversy. But it's like people, you know, like we're talking, you know, slavery in America, right? I mean, that's how people referred to people, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, what I appreciated with the narrative was that the story revolves around like a clear sort of quest. It's Django's, you know, ob- objective with Broomhilda. It's like a clear, emotionally resident, ob- sort of, sort of quest that's a strong driving force i i like that um i like the relationship between django and schultz their sort of evolving partnership because at the end you can tell that django clearly does care for schultz you know he sort of finds his body and sort of says thank you and blah blah, blah. so I, I did like all that um what else i've said about the themes yeah the pacing was fine for the most part but i've said about the ending was too long but i thought i i was never you know, it was never dull. I was never like, oh, when's this going to end? Like, it was fine. I was fine with the pacing and the length for the most part. Um, 
And yeah, I've said about the performances. Oh, um, Samuel Jackson, I thought was was good as well. I liked his performance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. as um, he often is. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there is there is a sort of accusation. Again, I don't agree with it, but that's like a sort of white savior narrative, <laughs> because um, Schultz is sort of has to free Django and becomes his mentor, and then like kickstarts his journey to freedom. Helps, but but I but I disagree because Django eventually sort of takes um sort of agency in what he does. I was gonna say, and he like he clearly these people didn't make it to the end of a yeah, film and he where... he disobeys Schultz because Schultz says when they get to Candy's uh, place, they say he says like that you know they had that parlay in the road, and Schultz says like calm down, stop stop provoking them, and he's like no, I'm I'm going to show him you know that I mean business, and I'm going to rescue Boomhilda, and so I think. I don't, and also they they have a shared objective, like it's like a mutual benefit. Yeah. So Schultz is, and the whole thing about it is Django couldn't get anywhere unless he'd been free. Yeah, and the only person who was most likely to free him was a white guy. Yeah, and I mean, so. yeah, and also they sort of team up at the end because Schultz gets sick of. I love that scene where Schultz just gets sick of Candy. You know, when Candy's like, "Shake, I want you to shake my hand after," and he's like, "No, fuck this! I'm just, I'm, I'm just gonna shoot you." I love that scene. Uh, and then Django immediately shoots the guy that shoots Schultz. It's like they're like bros. They're like bros at that point. Like I love that. Um, and yeah, oh yeah, like the costuming and the set design. I think it was pretty authentic. Well, Django's blue outfit maybe not so authentic. But that was actually based on a uh, Gainsborough painting called the Blue Boy. If you look it oh, up, if yeah. you if you look, yeah, if you've yeah, seen yeah. it, yeah. So that was yeah, yeah. On that. So that's kind of yeah. Um, but yeah, the set design was good. All the plantations, the landscapes, the towns—I think all the sort of interiors—I liked. I liked all that. So it made a really good atmosphere. Um, yeah, all the furnishings, the decor, the props—I thought that was all great. All the attention to detail. Um, I thought the score was good. I didn't like the sort of well, it was it was um Morricone, so of course it's going to be good. But I didn't like the sort of interjecting of modern soundtrack into it. I thought it could have took me out of it a bit. Like, just stick to a traditional Western. And it's, you, know, you have Morricone doing it. Like, let him do his thing, you know. Um, some people like it for the blend of the old and the new, but I I don't know. I just Give me a traditional Western score. That's fine with me. Uh, and that's pretty much, you know, yeah. I, I thought it was, again, I wouldn't put it into my favourites, or I think it did go into my, I don't know if I put it into my best films of all time. Maybe I didn't. Um, but I think it's a very solid, very good, entertaining film. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to build on what you said, I don't have much more to offer. Um, you said it all better than I could. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think for, it was good, as you said, a good a good score and a good, it was a well-written film, um, both of which are things you sort of come to expect with Tarantino. Um, and then I guess my cons, because you sort of said a lot of the pros, what I would say. Um, it's not a comedy, right? I get that. And Tarantino doesn't really do comedies. I know there's some films where he leans into more of a comedy, but all of his films are dramas per se, right? They just sort of have... Well, Pulp, Pulp Fiction is sort of black comedy. Yes, yeah, uh, right. Yeah. That's probably the exception. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really find it funny, mm-hmm. apart from a few lines, but it was similar to like other films I've seen of his, where it is usually like a scene or two where I laugh. Yeah. Was it, was it meant to be... Saying, was it meant... I don't think it was meant to be a comedy. No, but I, I do feel like it was trying hard at times to, like, elicit laughs. 
and I was like, uh, can you just like sort of stay serious? Um, but that's not to say it, it wasn't trying to be a comedy, so I don't hold that against it. But I, I think, but I think at the times it was, it sort of was trying to be a comedy, if that makes sense. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. Um, I don't think I'm familiar enough with spaghetti westerns to understand like how effective of a satire it was because I know it was sort of taking off that whole spaghetti western and like what what that does and i've not i mean you probably seen a lot more than i have i haven't seen i've seen probably a handful if that like the spaghetti western so i i maybe couldn't appreciate where it was coming from in that regard but i will say i think even though i maybe didn't get that context of where it was coming from it was still a very enjoyable western because it had all those classic beats you would expect in a western right it has the themes of revenge it has the, the themes of okay there's small towns and obviously it's a lot more focused on plantations than you know traditional western obviously takes place in like a small town whatever whereas this is more obviously focused on slavery and plantation but they have that sort of themes you know racism which is which is uh, uh prevalent in in some westerns you know and oftentimes the characters have to overcome that you know the violence which i enjoyed I apparently didn't think it was all that violent to the rest of the world but i enjoyed the violence um a sort of you know journeying across the land and sort of going on this this trip so i i, I liked all that and i think i loved that scene where django is talking to to samuel jackson's character and uh and he's like oh you know you can't shoot me i count six shots and then django pulls out another gun he's like well i count two guns yeah i was like oh shit yeah yeah like, <laughs> there are many like mic drop moments it's pretty yeah. yeah so that was you know so i i i like the fact that even though maybe i didn't have the historical context to appreciate the full thing of what Tarantino was doing i could still appreciate it just for being a western um i do agree with you i think it was too long in my opinion like it was nearly three hours long mm. um it could have been trimmed. It, it could, could have been trimmed. You yeah. definitely could have cut some stuff out. Because to me, I found it relatively slow up until the connection between Django and Broomhilda was like deduced. Like then it was interesting. But in, but in saying that, I understand why it had to show the events leading up to that. So I, I can't yeah. really criticize it too much. But I do. I like the second half. Like the whole everything from when they get to candy sort of plantation yes. i think is better than what's it's before it's sort of like eyes wide shut oh. once they get to the mansion it gets better um right <laughs> um and then my final point which i've raised this in every tarantino film we've talked about of course he had to insert himself into the film this drives me mental i'm like stop doing this You're he's like, not a good actor he's very poor he's terrible actor. i know he's not a good actor and he had some weird like australian accent in this i don't know what he was going for i think they're meant to be australian but it's weird like you're in an american south in the 1860s how many australians were over there like he's american he's right, american exactly. why can't weird. he just do an like, american why are you trying accent? to be australian and i just i hate i hate seeing him in films i'm like you can't act bro like stop putting yourself in i find i i did find it funny how he like blew himself up though like is i don't find it like he's the director of the film and he decides to blow himself i think i was kind of like a messer quite a funny thing it's like do. he adds nothing um, like it was the same in the reservoir dogs he adds nothing i'm like you're in here because of your own vanity and because you want to be you want to put yourself in a film like, there's nothing it, wrong with a cameo like hitchcock put a a short cameo in each like a very short him on the subway or the yeah you know, which is just sort of he a, didn't speak. A, yeah, it, that's it's fine. a little funny yeah. easter egg right not yeah. like giving yourself a whole role in the film like you're not orson wells you know like you're, you're not directing yourself you're not a clint eastwood or whoever like just stay on the other side of the camera and stop inserting yourself into these films but i was going to say as to your point like um i think i did appreciate it a bit more because i've I've only seen about six or seven um, spaghetti westerns, but I do I do really like them. Um, and there's one called Django 
f- funny enough, <laughs> with with Franco Nero, who had a cameo, you know, when they're in the, the first time they meet Candy in that sort of restaurant bar, you know, when they're wrestling with a when the in, in that room, the, there's a guy who comes up to the bar and like speaks to Django really quickly. He's in a hat. That's that's so he's called Franco Nero, and he's the original Django in the film Django. So I was like, that was like a fanboy moment. I was like, oh my god, it's Franco Nero. Um, but that that was cool because um, I think Tarantino wanted to do like an homage to that film, and also Morricone did the score for Django as well. I think so. It's very much in the vein of that film. Um, so I appreciated that, and I think yeah, because I've seen some spaghetti westerns, I sort of would enjoy it naturally a bit more than someone who maybe hasn't seen some. Um, but yeah, it it wouldn't rank in my favorite. I haven't put it in my favorite westerns or anything, but I think it's 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 a solid one. Um, and, I, and I appreciate westerns being made, you know, in modern times. I think it's pretty cool when that happens. Well, I mean, there's a lot of like it, like if I go to my western list, for instance. Um which is there's quite a few films on there but well yeah so and then and then if i go if i sort by say when uh let's go release date newest first so if i look here some of sort of us stuff i have sort of rated highly um so there's one called old henry that came out a couple of years ago that was good um there was one from hella high water um from 2016 which was good in a valley of violence the same year was good um burn tomahawk said very gory but it was a good film um true grit from 2010 which is like one of my favorite films ever um i could watch that film endlessly um no country for old men of course 2007 fantastic watch um even something sort of as 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 uh late is if that's the right word as something like legends of a fall obviously with brad pitt that's sort of a, a epic western so yeah so it's still I, I i like the fact given that western is sort of one of my favorite film genres i like the fact that people are still making films western films that are sort of taking or or finding new ways to sort of uh approach this genre because i feel like western is in the grand scheme of things a very tired genre you know it's a very it's it's very predictable. It's the same story over and over. Especially if you look at like the uh, golden age of westerns, you know, thirties, forties, fifties. It's the same story over and over. And that doesn't make them any less enjoyable. But it's like sometimes, sometimes a lot of them are varied for, for the, for the ones I mean, I've seen. A, a lot of um, them are. It is it is quite um, what's the word yeah. like uh, like. Well, they became they became a sort of formula where they sort of yeah that, yeah there are standards right, exactly. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. It's yeah. a formula. So. Yes, yeah. So I appreciate when you, directors can sort of take a different approach, like you know, like, like this. Where if you look at it, it is basic. It's like Django Unchained is probably a pretty standard western in its core sort of story, but what Tarantino did with it made it more interesting. So, um, yes. Well, there we go. So, yes, yeah, a good note to end on. A good note to close the year out on on positivity and not arguing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look forward to the next one. Many, yeah, epi- yeah, many more arguments <laughs> o- over the next. But hopefully, year. some yeah. some agreement. <laughs> exactly. Know. We don't we don't argue all the time. Yeah, is that, yeah. Time. We normally have some agreement. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. Some yeah. of the time, seventy yeah. percent of the time. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that wraps up this episode. That wraps up our episodes for the year. Um, thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode and all our episodes in twenty twenty three um watch this space for 2024 we don't know what we're doing yet but we've got plans yeah 
That sounds so weird, 2024. Sounds really it's like here, futuristic. It'll be here before we know it. it. Sounds very strange. And, uh, so, yeah, so we've got plans yeah, yeah. for the podcast. So stay tuned and uh, mm-hmm. hopefully early 2024, we'll be back at it uh, in some sense and talking about all sorts of films next year. We might even get some new watches in. You know, there's some good films slated to come out next year. So Exactly. You're, I bet you're excited for June, June part two. I was I was literally just about yeah. to mention that's yeah. the top of my list. Yeah. <laughs> so and didn't we discuss we June? Did on the uh, podcast? I think we did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I pretty mean, we, we yeah. both yeah. seen it. So yeah. yes, yeah. So maybe we will both go and see June two, and we can you know we can discuss that. Yeah, so. we should. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks everyone for tuning into us this year. We really appreciate it. And yes, stay tuned for next year because. We have some exciting things on the horizon. And as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you could give us a rating on Apple Podcast or Spotify. And this will be the only time I get to say this. We'll see you next year. Exactly. See you <laughs> next year. <laughs>